the good news according to Mark, the fifth chapter. We are reading chapter by chapter through Mark's gospel. And today we're reading through portions of chapter five. And there's a couple of interesting things about our reading today. One, is which, one of which is the word that Mark likes to use most often, which is immediately. You'll see the word immediately three times in today's passage. And he uses it in just about every other passage that he writes. Also in today's gospel reading, we will see two words in Jesus' own language, which is a very rare thing to read in the gospel. Two words that will be written in his original Aramaic. Last week, Jesus was in Gentile territory. Today, he returns to his Jewish community. Jesus heals Jairus' daughter, who is at the point of death. A woman with a hemorrhage is considered unclean and to be avoided. But Jesus calls her daughter, connecting with her, bringing her into a transformative relationship. Mark writes, When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered round him and he was by the lake. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and when he saw him, fell at his feet, and begged him repeatedly, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. So Jesus went with him. And a large crowd followed Jesus and pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years, she had endured much under many positions, and had spent all that she had, and she was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his cloak. For she said, If I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. Immediately, her hemorrhage stopped, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that the power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you. How can you say who touched me? Jesus looked all around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him, and told him the whole truth. Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from Jairus, the leader's house, to say, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he entered, he said to them, Why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. They laughed at him. Then he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her in Aramaic, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, get up. 
And immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. She was 12 years of age. At this they were overcome with amazement. Jesus strictly ordered them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. The Gospel of the Lord. <coughs>
want to applaud for the choir and thank them for what they did. Your job they did. But that was rather sweet. We are living in a time of political conflict, partisan polarization. We see a strong and increasing divergence in our government and gridlock. There is a sense of a culture war, a battle of opposing value systems, even conflicting realities. In 1992, a national convention speech spoke of a culture war and a religious war. And it seems as though each election since then has had that conflict become even more pronounced. Preaching in this time of heightened polarization is more difficult. Or maybe the way to look at it is that preaching in this time is more consequential. To preach about current events runs the risk of getting into controversy. And maybe preaching has always been like that. It was for John the Baptist, it was for the prophets, for Jesus, the apostles, none of them avoided controversy. Many Christians believe that their faith requires them to deny science. And there are politicians then who seek to appeal to such Christians and will deny science as a matter of campaign promises and then even public policy. As a preacher, I think it's important to speak to such a vitally important topic and to counter some of the anti-science rhetoric that we hear. As a preacher, leaning into these issues, being topical, being relevant, addressing important moral issues of the day, it's important to realize that a preacher is not speaking for themselves. There is a scripture verse to attend to, although that is many voices. As a preacher, I need to be in conversation with my fellow Lutheran colleagues. We meet each week. We went away on a retreat the week before last. As a preacher, I need to be in conversation with my interfaith colleagues. <clears throat> As a preacher, I need to be in conversation with you. It is not about one individual person's message. So in accordance with our congregational culture here at St. Paul's, in accordance with our national church, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, I believe in science. In our church, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, we believe in science, we affirm the work of scientists. Martin Luther, in the 16th century, among his most important contributions was the idea that we all have a calling, a vocation. In the 16th century, there was this idea that some Christians were more religious, that monks and nuns and priests were especially holy, and bishops holier still, and cardinals were princes in God's kingdom. Luther said, all of us, put our hands to things that are a holy calling. 
Luther said, changing a baby's diaper is a calling from God. Washing dishes, growing potatoes, baking bread, all of these are a calling, a vocation. Luther, right in keeping with the Apostle Paul, sees each of us, each and every one of us, as gifted in our own ways. Gifted in ways to be of service to God and to our neighbor. Many Christians believe in their Bible, believe in Christ, and also believe in science. Isaiah is one of my favorite books of the Bible. And in his book, he says that he heard God say, Come, let us reason together. Reason, discuss, question, use rational thought, apply methodology of how to search for truth systematically eliminate theories that don't test out. For centuries, people believed that the world was flat. And when people began to make mathematical observations to notice the curve of the Earth, when people began studying the skies and realizing that the Earth is round and is moving, some leaders of the church said, no, the Bible says the Earth is flat and the sun moves around the earth. When scientists were explaining how they thought the earth was round, they were disciplined, corrected, threatened by the church of their time. All these centuries later, at times, science is still being attacked. When scientists began explaining Darwin's theory of evolution, there were some churches some politicians who said, the Bible says no, no evolution. But we, who believe in the Bible, also believe in science. Today we read one of many healing stories. Throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament, we read these stories. There are some Christians who think that we don't need medical science. They reject medical science. They refuse medical treatment. We know that prayer is healing. We know congregational life and fellowship is healing. Praying for each other, praying with each other is healing. A life of Christian service and study and worship is healing. But we also believe in science. Martin Luther King Jr. once said that prayer is a great supplement to action but not a substitute. Prayer is healing. And medical science is curative in many instances, palliative in many cases. Our understanding of healing as Christians involves more than a cure, and sometimes something other than a cure. So we believe in medical science. Climate science tells us that we cannot continue with our current consumption, that we have an emergency. The planet cannot continue to handle all the oil and gas and coal we are burning. The planet cannot handle all the plastic we are producing and discarding. The results are all around the world. The Arctic, Australia, flooded coastal cities of the world, 
The coral reefs, the oceans, the Amazon are all in great danger, show signs of great stress. There are people who reject this science. There are politicians who say, I'm not a scientist, and then they proceed to overrule the science. Science is not perfect. Science can be dangerous. Science needs a community of scientists and a consensus of methodology and experimentation that can be independently reproduced and tested. Scientists need a community, like preachers need a community. Academics need an academy. Lawyers need a bar association. Electricians need a union. Doctors need a medical association. Crafters need a guild. Knitters and quilters need a circle. Journalists need professional training and standards and peer review. Science can be dangerous. Preaching can be dangerous. Religion can be dangerous. Like fire that can warm your home and purify your food and cauterize a wound, control our forests and give us light, fire can also destroy in cataclysmic fashion. The same is true of religion. The same is true of science. Preachers should be offering comfort instead of inciting values wars and a grievance culture. Preachers should be offering hope and inspiring better lives. But this means that preachers must engage in the great pursuit of truth, fighting for truth. We must defend faith. We must defend faithful preaching of the good news. We are now in the season of Epiphany, a season of light. We're still basking in the star of Bethlehem. We're working towards that brilliance of Jesus on the mountaintop. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, wrote Isaiah. We must walk in the light. And walking in the light is about a spirit of inquiry and curiosity. And we do this to make the world better, to be of help. Martin Luther, in the 16th century, said vocations are not just about people who live in cloistered monasteries. Vocations are not just for priests and preachers. Vocations are for everyone. How you occupy your time each day can be seen as an answer to a call from God. Vocations are a call from God. Vocatio, the Latin, is where we get words like vocal and voice. God's voice calls each of us to our daily activities. None lesser, none greater. Each from God. Vocations, callings, are for all fields of endeavor. All occupations, all the ways we serve our families, all the ways we think and imagine and create are all ways of giving honor and glory to God to shine light and love in the world.
choir for that beautiful song. Uh, so Rabbi Goldberg, myself, and Reverend Kathy Genus are appearing in each other's uh, pulpits. Uh, I spoke at uh, El Souls with uh, Reverend Kathy Genus uh, two Sundays ago, and Kathy spoke at the synagogue uh, last Saturday. And the three of us are visiting each other and talking about the topic of gratitude. I spend an hour at Starbucks one morning a week in an attempt to make myself accessible to my congregation and to the broader community. And please come join me any Thursday, 8 to 9 a.m. to chat, although not this Thursday because it's Thanksgiving. <laughs> and while I often do end up speaking with someone, someone I know or someone who approaches me with my little sign, I also spend a lot of time just watching people come in and out of the store to get their morning coffee. And most people seem to want to get in and out of there as quickly as possible. And today, even with, with the app, you can pick up your coffee while barely interacting with another person. And the whole thing has become as impersonal as buying something from a vending machine. For the writer H.A. Jacobs, buying coffee every morning without thinking much about it had become his routine. And for some time, he had noticed his own baseline grumpy and irritable disposition, even after his coffee. He was spending too many of his waking hours letting petty irritations dominate his consciousness. Jacobs had read of the overwhelming psychological research about the benefits of gratitude, and he had hoped for a mental makeover by making gratitude a larger part of his life. So, he decided to start with his morning coffee. He set out on the ambitious but imaginable task of saying thank you to 1,000 people who contributed in one way or another to his morning coffee. And he chronicled the results in his recent book, Thanks a Thousand, A Gratitude Journey. He started with the person he already encountered, the barista at his local coffee shop. After thanking her, they got to talking about her job. And the barista, a friendly young woman named Chung, explained that her job was really about bringing joy to her customers by serving them coffee. She shared her frustration about when that joy is not reciprocated, either by the occasional belligerent customer or by the many others who cannot even be bothered to make eye contact during their brief transaction. Jacobs was moved to learn how it felt to be on the other side of his daily coffee stop. He realized that he had definitely related to baristas and to other service workers like vending machines and not like human beings. This is the opposite of gratitude, which is about affirming something good and then crediting someone else for creating it. Gratitude begins by recognizing the humanity and contributions of people who might otherwise escape our notice. But at least he already came into contact with the barista. To thank the many other people involved in producing his coffee, he would have to go looking for them. Using his journalist research skills, he tracked down the people who chose the coffee beans and roasted them and transported them and harvested them in rural Colombia. He found the people who manage and ensure the quality of New York City's water supply, which itself is a massive undertaking. He thanked the steel workers whose steel is in the coffee equipment and the loggers who fall the trees to make the paper cup. 
He tracked down the designers of the logo on the paper cup and of its fancy lid and cardboard sleeve, which, by the way, is called a Zarf. And on and on and on to form the list of 1,000 names in his book's appendix. A.J. Jacobs, though, is not the first person to contemplate how the effort of many people produces something that is easy to take for granted. Cultivating gratitude is fundamental to Jewish spirituality. As Jews, we take our name from our ancestor Judah, Yehuda, whose name comes from the Hebrew word for giving thanks. The Talmud, the central text of rabbinic Judaism, records the comment of an ancient sage known as Ben Zoma, who remarked, how much effort did Adam, the first person, exert before he found bread to eat? He plowed, sowed, reaped, sheathed, threshed, winnowed, separated grain from chaff, ground the grain into flour, sifted, kneaded, and baked, and only thereafter he ate. Yet I, Ben Zoma remarked, I wake up and I find all of this already prepared for me. As Ben Zoma's statement reminds us, we all depend on many people's efforts to live our daily lives. And others certainly depend on us in turn. But it's easy in the hustle and bustle of life to lose sight of this fundamental reality. It is easy to think that we owe only financial payment to people who are just doing their jobs. Gratitude is about increasing our awareness of other people's contributions and expressing that awareness in tangible ways. Gratitude, like any other virtue, is about both action and also habits of thought and feeling. It operates in the moral economy of emotions and virtues rather than in the financial economy of transactions and payment. Gratitude helps us to counterbalance a deficiency mindset. Simply put, there's no limit on what we do not have. We could always have more. And this situation could lead us to frustration and disappointment. Practicing gratitude shifts our focus from lamenting what we do not have to appreciating what we do have. Ben Zoma, that same sage who expressed gratitude for the workforce that produced his daily bread, also taught, who is wealthy? Those who are happy with their portion. Real wealth comes not from having more and more, but in appreciating what we already have. Gratitude can be difficult enough when things are basically going well for us. But what about when they are not? Sometimes people who are suffering are told to count their blessings in a way that minimizes their pain or stifles their desire to improve their situation. So how can we be grateful even when things do not look so good? Some time ago I visited a family gathered around its dying matriarch's hospital bed. As I spoke with her son, the reality of his mother's imminent demise hit him, and he began to cry. After a few moments, he collected himself, and he said, well, we had her for so many years. When done well, gratitude cannot coexist with resentment or selfishness, but gratitude can coexist with suffering. Our spiritual task is to do what that man did, to both feel our sadness, our anger, our pain, and also to look for things we can be grateful for in that very same situation. And in that very Jewish way, we're invited to taste the bitter and the sweet simultaneously. The Hebrew term for gratitude is instructive here, hakarat hatov, which literally means recognizing the good. Gratitude is precisely that, 
We search out and recognize the good we might otherwise overlook, but without pretending that bad things are good. We hold on to both. Neither negates the other. So practically speaking, how can we cultivate more gratitude? Jacob reports in his book that he and his mother are gratitude buddies. Every day they email each other one thing they are grateful for. Such a daily exercise helps train us in gratitude, and eventually we feel and express gratitude simultaneously. Other people keep a gratitude journal where they write a daily log of their gratitude, where they share their gratitude around the dinner table. Jewish tradition offers simple and practical tools for cultivating gratitude, like saying the prayer Modéani, which begins our morning service, which expresses gratitude for the gift of life itself, or the many short blessings, one-sentence prayers that Jewish tradition gives us to say before we eat or before we experience something good. The psychological research about gratitude has demonstrated that gratitude's most important outcome is an increased sense of connection. A.J. Jacobs put a limit of 1,000 people to thank for his coffee after he realized that the true number of people connected somehow to his coffee is actually infinite. For every person in the direct supply chain, there's everyone they rely on, and everyone they rely on, and so on and so on. Jacob writes, Jacobs writes, if we connected the world with threads signifying gratitude, the result would be as thick as a blanket. In conclusion, I want to practice gratitude for the connection that I feel with you. So thank you to Pastor O'Hanlon and to all in the St. Paul's community for your invitation this morning and for your neighborly friendship throughout the year. Thank you for listening and considering what I have to say. As we approach Thanksgiving, the holiday season, and this new year, I pray that the time ahead will be full of reasons for all of us to express gratitude. Amen.
page six, we have a piece of Hebrew that we typically recite. Um, it's not exactly Hebrew, but it's our attempt at Hebrew, where we sing praise to the Lord by saying hallelujah. Uh, so at the top of page six, if we could do our hallelujah affirmation, and Patty, if you're able to read the gospel for us. Sure. According to Luke, the 24th chapter. Welcoming a stranger to dinner in Emmaus. Hearing instruction on the law and the prophets sets the, dis the disciples' hearts on fire. When Jesus was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? The Gospel of the Lord. We continue with the prayers of the people. Sustained and nurtured by our generous God, we gather as one to pray for the church, the world, and all of God's creation. Faithful God, you call your church to serve you. Help us to break down barriers between neighborhoods, political parties, and nations. Sustain communities, leaders, legislators, volunteers, peacemakers, and all who seek the good of their communities. We thank you for the friendship and the partnership with Rabbi Goldberg and Congregation KTI in so many ways in serving the community, in fellowship, and in learning. We thank you also for our fellowship with the people at All Souls and their pastor, Reverend Kathy Genis. May we always remember the poor and be of service to all in need. Hear us, O oh God. Loving God, you make yourself known in your creation, in mountains and valleys, in plants and animals, and in those who care for what you have made. Show us ways to build bridges and tear down walls. Give wisdom and courage to our nation's leaders, strength to all who serve, and healing for those who bear wounds, seen and unseen of battle. Hear us, O God. Holy God, give us joy now and help all whom we pray for especially Merrick, Myrtle, the Byrne family, Pam, John, Phil, Emmett, Anilda, Scott, Dylan, Carlene, Michael, Marge, Brigitte, Diane, Sandy, Scott, David, Olivia, William, Nancy, Patricia, Alexander, Helena, Sally, Hear us, O God, God of our ancestors and of generations yet to come, bless families that mourn the loss of loved ones, especially the families of Ruth Mazda and Donna Maselli. Bless those celebrating birthdays, especially Corinne 
and Jesse. Hear us, O God. Hear us according to your steadfast love, O God. Help us to live in the freedom of your forgiveness and to share your great compassion with all who need it. Bring us all to fullness of life. In Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The peace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ be with you all. And also with you. Let us share with each other a sign of Christ's peace.